characters that he and they conceive to be elemental to the national psyche. Several stylistic storytelling devices help Churchill make that connection, but one in particular stands out. Churchill replaced long words with short ones. The Storyteller's Tools The shorter words of a language are usually the more ancient, Churchill once said. Their meaning is more ingrained in the national character, and they appeal to greater force. Churchill's words motivated millions of people because he crafted his speeches in language that was instantly understandable to the greatest number of people. And the greatest number of people prefer short words they hear in everyday conversation. On June 18, 1940, France fell to Germany. It was one of the darkest moments of World War II. Churchill gave a radio address on that day. A photocopy of the original speech still exists. The manuscript shows longer words crossed out and replaced with short ones. For example, he replaces the word liberated with freed. The ending paragraph of the speech became a rallying cry for the British people. In 180 words, Churchill lays out his argument for war. I'm going to read you the passage. Note that three-quarters of the words you'll hear are one syllable. What General Wigand called the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties. And so bear ourselves that, if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Churchill edited relentlessly, cutting unnecessary words and sentences. He packed a lot of content in a few well-chosen words, using very simple language to tell complex stories. At a crucial point in the Battle of Britain, when German warplanes were bombing London daily. Every available British aircraft was in the sky to stop the planes from reaching the city. As Churchill sat in a car with his military secretary, he said, Don't speak to me. I have never been so moved. Churchill sat quietly for five minutes. He then turned to his secretary and asked him to write down a thought that would become one of the most famous quotes of World War II. Churchill said, Never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. Only four words in that sentence are more than one syllable. And if you think about it, in six words, Churchill told the entire story of British courage and what it meant to the rest of the world. Those six words are, so much, so many, so few.
Those six words summarize stories that would fill entire books. Let me explain. So much. That stands for freedom, democracy, liberty, much of which would have been eliminated had Hitler not been stopped. So many. Those two words represent the entire population of the English Empire at the time and those who lived in the countries Hitler had invaded. So few is a reference to a small number of English pilots, many of whom were killed in the skies as they successfully defended their homeland. According to Boris Johnson, for millions of people, sophisticated and unsophisticated, Churchill deployed his rhetorical skills to put courage in their hearts and to make people believe they could fight off a threat more deadly than any they had ever known. Churchill showed how the art of rhetoric could help save humanity. According to Wall Street Journal columnist Sue Schellenbarger, while trying to look intelligent, a lot of people do things that make them look dumb. The article summarized a growing body of research on how we form impressions of other people. Many people believe that if they use big words, capacious, voluminous, consequential language, others will find the use of such words to be a sign of intelligence. The exact opposite is true. If you'd like to sound smart and confident, replace big words with small ones. Big words don't impress people. Big words actually frustrate people. Leaders who launch movements do not implement a plan. They carry it out. Leaders who start movements don't offer remuneration for carrying out the plan. They reward people for doing it. Leaders who launch movements don't carry out a plan from inception to termination. They see it through from start to finish. Short words instead of long words. Churchill proved that one person can make a difference. One person can save a civilization. But no person has a chance to persuade the greatest number of people if they cannot explain their ideas with short, well-chosen words. The Storyteller's Secret Storytellers motivate the largest number of people with the fewest words possible. Part 5. Storytellers Who Launch Movements Chapter 33. Great Storytellers Are Made, Not Born Don't address their brains, address their hearts. Nelson Mandela It's Tuesday, August 27, 1963. At 10 p.m., Clarence Jones returns to his room at the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C. Clarence's task is to compile the pages and pages of handwritten notes he had taken during a meeting in the hotel's lobby and to turn the notes into a cohesive speech for his boss. Clarence returned to the lobby less than two hours later. His boss and a group of key advisors listened to Clarence explain and defend the speech he had written. They peppered Clarence with questions. Why didn't you include this? Why did you say that? Clarence's boss interrupted the discussion. He had heard enough and decided to go to his room. On Wednesday, August 28, Clarence's phone rang at 7 a.m. The speech was done, and copies were being placed in press kits for an event later that day. 
The next time Clarence saw a copy of the speech, it was sitting on the lectern where his boss, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., would soon speak. As the crowd on the Washington Mall swelled to 250,000 people, King took his place behind the microphone on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, glanced down at the prepared text in front of him, and began to speak. Five score years ago, a great American, in whose symbolic shadow we stand today, signed the Emancipation Proclamation. A smile washed upon Clarence's face as he realized that King had kept the opening paragraphs that Clarence had written. Maybe Clarence had finally discovered King's voice. If so, it would have been the first time that King read Clarence's speeches word for word. When it came to my speech drafts, King often acted like an interior designer, Clarence said. I would deliver four strong walls, and he would use his God-given abilities to furnish the place so it felt like home. King would breathe life into Clarence's narrative. As Martin Luther King continued to deliver the speech, and Clarence grew more pleased that the civil rights leader was reading the words he had actually put to paper, something happened that would transform the speech and the future of a nation along with it. The gospel singer, Mahalia Jackson, who was standing near King, shouted, Tell him about the dream, Martin! Few people heard the shout, but King did, and he knew exactly what she meant. King had used the metaphor of a dream in previous speeches, but he had no intention of revisiting it on the mall in Washington. It was not included in the copy of the speech handed to the press. According to Clarence, Martin clutched the speaker's podium, a hand on each side, leaned back, and looked at the throng of 250,000 or more assembled in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Clarence knew exactly what would happen next. He turned to the person next to him and whispered, These people out there today don't know it yet, but they're about ready to go to church. I have a dream, King exclaimed. And with those words, Martin Luther King channeled three generations of Baptist preachers before him. Clarence had seen it before. He said that King had an incredible ability to improvise, reimagine his own polished text, and even recall and, if it felt right, insert other ways he'd presented the material previously. The sequence that made Martin Luther King's dream speech the greatest speech of the 20th century had all been improvised. The words, I have a dream, are not in the original copy of the speech. Now think about it. To improvise does not mean to create something out of nothing. It means to assemble from whatever materials are readily available. King's materials were available in his head. You may have heard about the 10,000-hour rule. Experts believe it requires about 10,000 hours of practice to be world-class in a skill such as a sport, mastering music, performing surgery. The concept directly applies to storytelling and public speaking. Martin Luther King is a great example. He was on his high school debate team. He had been ordained a minister 16 years before delivering the dream speech. If we start doing the math, we can see that King was honing his public speaking ability for at least 20 years 
before he delivered the words that would transform a nation. It's believed that King gave 2,500 speeches in his lifetime. If we assume two hours of writing and practicing for each one, in many cases he spent more than that, we arrive at the conservative estimate of 5,000 hours. But those are speeches. They don't take into account high school debates and hundreds of sermons. You get the point. King had easily reached 10,000 hours of practice by the 28th of August, 1963. Martin Luther King was a master of improvisation because he had put in the time to master his craft. Great storytellers are made, not born. The Storyteller's Tools Storytellers don't take shortcuts because there aren't any to take. Inspiration takes practice, hours and hours of practice. Some famous TED speakers rehearsed their presentation up to 200 times before they delivered it on a TED stage. You'll recall Pastor Joel Osteen, who we've talked about. Osteen told me that he rehearses each sermon for six hours before delivering it on Saturday night. He then delivers it twice on Sunday. It's the third sermon that millions of people see on television. Viewers see a polished storyteller, but they don't see the hours of polish that went into crafting an inspiring story. Steve Jobs meticulously rehearsed every keynote for weeks ahead of his famous product launches. The billionaire Warren Buffett enrolled in a Dale Carnegie course and even volunteered to teach a business class at the University of Omaha, and he did so to get over his fear of public speaking. Today, his Dale Carnegie certificate is the only diploma that he proudly hangs on his office wall. In 1964, Ronald Reagan gave a rousing speech to support then-Republican candidate Barry Goldwater. Goldwater lost the election, but voters were inspired by Reagan, who went on to become California's governor and, of course, the 40th president of the United States. The audience saw a magnificent storyteller on the stage beginning in 1964, but they did not witness Reagan delivering hundreds of speeches to thousands of GE employees over the course of eight years when GE sponsored a television show that Reagan hosted. In much the same way, Martin Luther King had years and years of practice before giving the speech that captivated the world. And it's only through practice that King was able to skillfully use two classical rhetorical techniques, which, as we've already discussed, are the building blocks of storytelling. Those two are metaphor and anaphora. The Master of Metaphor in a sense, we've come to the nation's capital to cash a check, King said. The architects of the U.S. Constitution and Declaration of Independence had drafted a promissory note, King said, that guaranteed all of its citizens unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note, according to King. Storytellers like Martin Luther King made a conscious effort to incorporate metaphor into their speeches and presentations. This whole concept of the promissory note, that's just one of many metaphors in King's speech. Metaphor gave King the tool to breathe life into abstract concepts. 
Here are some other examples. King said, let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. King would say, now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. King also said, I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a desert state, sweltering with the heat of injustice and oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. Desert, heat, oasis, those are powerful metaphors. Metaphor is a critical component of the storyteller's toolkit. According to author James Geary, metaphor systematically disorganizes the common sense of things, jumbling together the abstract with the concrete, the physical with the psychological, the like with the unlike, and reorganizes it into uncommon combinations. The result of that, according to Geary, is that metaphorical thinking shapes our view of the world and is essential to how we communicate, learn, discover, and invent. We often think and explain our feelings in metaphor. Have you ever suffered from a broken heart? Hopefully you have found the light of your life. Have you ever taken on a project so intimidating it feels like an 800-pound gorilla? Maybe it's not that heavy and it's just an albatross around your neck. Entrepreneurs bootstrap their companies while others get cold feet. Either way, they're all shooting for the stars and the brass ring. Sometimes you must address the elephant in the room before it has a domino effect. Just be careful not to jump the shark. Some people sell snake oil. They're as slippery as an eel. Some people are smart as a fox and keep themselves busy as bees. They have the heart of a lion just as long as they don't get on their soapbox or get tunnel vision. You get the idea. We think and talk in metaphor. In sales especially, metaphors are often used to simplify complexity. For example, in technical terms, a dual-core microprocessor or chip has two performance engines that process data at a faster rate. Does that motivate you to buy one? Of course not. It's abstract, especially to non-engineers. What if I told you that a chip is the brain of a computer? And with dual-core chips, you get the equivalent of two brains in one computer. You'd be a little more intrigued, making it easier for me to explain the specific benefits of that product. That's what metaphor does. Metaphor and analogies are more likely to lead to sales because they bring clarity to abstraction. Some metaphors will resonate with your audience, others will fall flat. That's why writing metaphors is not a skill that comes naturally to most of us. It's an acquired storytelling technique. So don't hesitate to ask your peers or your colleagues for feedback. Even one of the greatest storytellers of the 20th century, Dr. Martin Luther King, asked trusted advisors to write portions of his speeches. King made the final edits, but he always had the confidence to let others lend him a hand. Can you repeat that? I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, Martin Luther King declared as he began the most cited sequence of the 20th century. Here's how he continued. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, 
the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners, will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, I have a dream, I have a dream today. In that dream speech, Martin Luther King is putting on a master class in the use of anaphora. Anaphora is a storytelling device where a word or a phrase is repeated at the beginning of successive sentences. In politics, Democrats and Republicans share one big love, anaphora. Anaphora is effective in the building of a movement because it increases the intensity of an idea, and the intense ideas sear themselves into our brain. We just talked about Winston Churchill. There's a reason why Churchill chose anaphora as his go-to rhetorical device to rally the British people during World War II. Here's one excellent example. Churchill said, We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Business leaders often shy away from anaphora because they believe it's a tool reserved for grand political speeches. Actually, anaphora can be seamlessly and very comfortably incorporated into business presentations that are meant to inspire audiences to see the world differently. For example, I watched a video of Leonard Walker, a division manager for Wells Fargo in Atlanta, and he was speaking to a quarterly meeting of the Atlanta Business Banking Association. His theme was the need for leadership and his key message was that the people in the room had an obligation to step up as leaders to help the local economy. Where are the leaders, Walker asked. Do we even need them now? The answers are yes, and the leaders are in this room. We are the leaders today. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones upon whose shoulders recovery rests. When you find your dream moment... Practice relentlessly to strike the right chord, and when you can, include stylistic tools like metaphor and anaphora that transform a functional presentation into a soul-stirring event. The Storyteller's Secret Great storytellers are made, not born. They take every opportunity to hone their public speaking skills and to work on the art of inspiring audiences. They experiment with every rhetorical device at their disposal, and they often become expert at using the building blocks of narrative, analogy, and metaphor. Chapter 34 Millions of women lean in after one woman dares to speak out. When you want to motivate, persuade, or be remembered, Start with a story of human struggle and eventual triumph. It will capture people's hearts by first attracting their brains. Paul Zak. Fifteen minutes is enough time to spark a movement. That's how much time Cheryl had to give a talk on the subject of women in the workplace. Some people didn't think she should do it. It will end your business career, they said. You'll never be taken seriously again. 
But Cheryl was convinced that she had to speak out about a problem in the business world. For all of women's gains in the workplace, there were still far too few of them in leadership positions. In December 2010, at the TED Women Conference in Washington, D.C., she tackled the problem head-on. In preparing for the speech, Cheryl did what came naturally to her. The former management consultant amassed mountains of statistics on things like how many heads of state are women and how many women make up the C-suite in corporate America. Just before she took the stage, Cheryl found herself unable to focus on the speech. She confided to her friend, Pat, that she was troubled about something that had happened before boarding the plane for the conference. Her three-year-old daughter, upset at the fact that her mother was leaving, clung to her leg, pleading, Mommy, don't go. Pat suggested that Cheryl should share the story with the mostly female audience. Are you kidding? Cheryl responded. I'm going to get up on stage and admit my daughter was clinging to my leg? If you want to get women into leadership roles, you have to be honest about how hard it is, Pat said. Cheryl took Pat's advice, and here's how she started her TED Talk. Now, at the outset, I want to be very clear that this speech comes with no judgments. I don't have the right answer. I don't even have it for myself. I left San Francisco, where I live, on Monday, and I was getting on a plane for this conference, and my daughter, who's three, when I dropped her off at preschool, did that whole hugging the leg, crying, Mommy, don't get on the plane thing. This is hard. I feel guilty sometimes. I know no women, whether they're at home or whether they're in the workplace, who don't feel that sometimes. So I'm not saying that staying in the workforce is the right thing for everyone. My talk today is about what the messages are if you do want to stay in the workforce. And I think there are three. One, sit at the table. Two, make your partner a real partner. And three, don't leave before you leave. Sheryl Sandberg's talk at TED Women went viral. The popularity of the topic and the stories she received from women who were inspired by it convinced the Facebook COO to write a book. The book quickly rose to bestseller status and inspired a movement with the same name, Lean In. By accident, Sandberg had discovered what Paul Zak had discovered in the lab. Stories alter brain chemistry that, in turn, triggers empathy in your audience. The Storyteller's Tools Although Sandberg introduced important data points in her now-famous TED Talk, personal stories made up just over 70% of the content. Statistics don't spark movements. Stories do. But while Sandberg had discovered the power of story to bring data to life, she reverted back to her training in data analysis as she began to write her now-famous book. Sandberg got another wake-up call. Here's how she explains it. I wrote a first chapter. I thought it was fabulous. It was chock-full of data and figures. I had three pages on matrilineal messiah tribes and their sociological patterns. My husband read it, and he was like, this is like eating your Wheaties. No one and I apologize to Wheaties, no one, no one will read this book. 
And I realized through the process that I had to be more honest and more open, and I had to tell my stories, my stories of still not feeling as self-confident as I should in many situations, my first and failed marriage, crying at work, feeling like I didn't belong there, feeling guilty to this day. Sandberg's friend, Pat Mitchell, the same woman who pulled Sandberg aside before her TEDx talk, commented to Cheryl on why she believes Lean In took off. According to Mitchell, I think that one of the most striking parts about the book, and in my opinion, one of the reasons it's hit such a nerve and is resonating around the world, is that you are personal in the book. You do make it clear that you've had the same challenges that many of us have. Sandberg says that by being open and honest with her story, she gives other women permission to be open and honest about theirs, and together they can achieve equality. That message resonated with one young woman at Facebook, an exceptionally bright engineer who at one time was afraid to speak up. A shy girl builds a piazza to give students a voice. Pooja Sankar's journey to Facebook was as unlikely as the prospects she faced growing up in a traditional village in India. A woman's role there was to cook, clean, and prepare for marriage. Sankar once told me, All through my middle and high school years, I grew up in a culture where it was taboo, unheard of actually, to speak to a boy or see eye to eye with them. Although Sankar grew up in a traditional family in a traditional town, her father took a strong stand on education. In 1998, Sankar enrolled in the India Institute of Technology, one of the most competitive schools in the world. It has a 1% acceptance rate. Upon entering college, Sankar felt intimidated despite the accomplishments that had gotten her there. The number one hurdle to overcome was my shyness, she said. I had to become confident to approach classmates who were mostly men. TAs and professors with questions about the course material. After college, at the age of 22, Sankar came to America, where she continued her studies, received two master's degrees at the University of Maryland, and an MBA from Stanford. Just prior to entering Stanford, Pooja worked as an engineer at Facebook in Silicon Valley, where she had the good fortune to attend a presentation by Sheryl Sandberg. Sankar told me, I remember many women who stood up and said they didn't feel like they had a support group or who were sometimes scared or intimidated to raise their hands or ask questions of male classmates. It was eye-opening that the problem wasn't just for women in northern India, but at many of the top colleges in America, there were many other women like myself. After graduating from business school, Sankar decided to combine her central struggle as a student with her skill in the field of computer science. She created Piazza, an online tool for college students and professors. Piazza is an Italian word for city square, where people come together to share knowledge and ideas. The online version created a space for students and professors to collaborate. Sankar found that investors professors, students, and other target audiences responded instantly to the way in which her personal story of overcoming shyness connected with Piazza's mission, and she now features that story prominently on the Piazza website. Here's how she tells the story. 
I started Piazza because I wish I had it. I was one of three women in my undergraduate computer science class. I had grown up in an all-girl high school, and my 50 male classmates had grown up mostly in all-boy high schools. We were too shy to interact with one another. My first year was challenging. Our professors would give us programming assignments, intending for us to learn a lot of the computer programming basics, except most nights I'd be up until 6 a.m. stuck on the nuances of the assignment. I'd sit in a corner of the computer lab, too shy to ask the guys in my class. They'd all talk to one another, ask each other questions, and learn a lot by working together. I missed out on this learning. I started Piazza so every student can have the opportunity to learn from her classmates. Whether she's too shy to ask, whether she's working alone in her dorm room, or whether her few friends in her class don't know the answer either, I want Piazza to be a remedy for students who are not given the intellectual space, freedom, or support to fulfill their educational potential and desire for learning. And I want Piazza to empower instructors to have a positive, personal impact on more students. Piazza is designed to connect students, TAs, and professors, so every student can get help when she needs it, even at 2 a.m. Sankar discovered that professors especially love to hear the founder's story. She told me they get pitched for tools that don't have an authentic story behind it. This way, they know the tool was created by an entrepreneur who was shy at one time and who doesn't want other shy students to struggle in class. It creates a lot of trust with professors. Inspiring stories must have two elements, as we've discussed. Tension and triumph. Today's new breed of storytellers, entrepreneurs like Sheryl Sandberg and Pooja Sankar, openly share the lessons they've learned to triumph over adversity. Proverbs 24.16 reads, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. At first reading, the wisdom seems to suggest that a successful person gets up despite being knocked down time and time again. The world's most inspiring leaders know the true meaning of the proverb. Successful people rise because they have fallen seven times. Failure and struggle are the two best teachers on the planet. They're what great stories are made of. The Storyteller's Secret Leaders don't move mountains with mountains of data. They do it by giving their audiences a piece of their heart. Chapter 35 The 60-Second Story That Turned the Wine World on Its Side A great story invites an expansion of understanding, a self-transcendence. Maria Popova I've never eaten as much cheese as I did when I visited Paris. There's a cheese shop on every corner selling hundreds of varieties. And it's not light cheese either. French cheeses are very high in fat, and the French eat a lot of it, about 40 pounds of cheese per person each year. In fact, the French eat about 60% more cheese than Americans. They also consume more high-fat, high-cholesterol meats. Why, then, do Americans suffer from heart disease at a much higher rate than the French? 
On November 17, 1991, the popular news program 60 Minutes revealed a possible answer. Host Morley Safer looked into the camera, held up a glass of red wine, and declared, The answer to France's low rate of heart disease may lie in this inviting glass. In that instant, the French paradox was born. Prior to the segment, the medical community had focused on alcohol as a risk factor in a person's diet. Overnight, doctors and federal dietary guidelines began to suggest that maybe drinking moderate amounts of red wine could be part of a healthy lifestyle. Later, a substance in red wine was found to give the wine its heart-protecting properties. The 60-minute segment triggered a wine boom. Within one year, consumption of red wine in America increased more than 40%. Americans drank more wine than ever. They bought more Cabernet and Merlot, two varietals that were easy to grow and had appealing price points. The one varietal that did not participate in the boom was Pinot Noir. Pinot was considered a tough sell. It's a very difficult grape to grow. A good Pinot Noir will set back consumers at least $20. And some become cult classics carrying a price tag of well over $100. It also has a very different taste profile than many of the red wines most Americans are used to drinking. Pinot's time would come, however, and it would arrive in the form of a story. In the 2004 movie Sideways, Paul Giamatti plays Miles Raymond. Miles is a divorced, depressed, and unsuccessful writer. He's a high school English teacher who dreams of selling a novel, but publishers keep turning him down. As his personal and professional life flounder, Miles takes his soon-to-be-married friend on a weekend of wine tasting in Santa Barbara. Miles is a wine connoisseur. He's a bit of a wine snob, actually, but he's very likable. He's funny, caring, and passionate. On the trip, Miles meets an attractive waitress, Maya, played by Virginia Madsen. Miles and Maya share a love of wine. In the pivotal scene of the movie, the two stroll outside of the porch with wine glasses in hand. Why are you so into Pinot? Maya asks. In the next 60 seconds of the movie... The character of Miles Raymond tells a story which would set off a boom in sales of Pinot Noir. It's a hard grape to grow, he said. It's thin-skinned, temperamental, ripens early. It's not a survivor like Cabernet, which can just grow anywhere and thrive even when it's neglected. No, Pinot needs constant care and attention. In fact, it can only grow in these really specific, tucked-away corners of the world. And only the most patient and nurturing of growers can do it, really. Only somebody who really takes the time to understand Pinot's potential can coax it into its fullest expression. Its flavors are the most haunting, brilliant, and thrilling, and subtle, and ancient on the planet. What Miles is doing is describing himself in the dialogue. And he's using Pinot Noir as a metaphor for his personality. In that one scene, moviegoers projected themselves onto the character, feeling his longing and his quest to be understood. Sideways was a hit and won an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. It also launched a movement. 
turning the misunderstood Pinot Noir into the must-have wine of the year. In less than one year after the movie's 2004 fall release date, sales of Pinot Noir rose 18%. Winemakers began to grow more of the grape to meet demand. In California alone, 70,000 tons of Pinot Noir grapes were harvested and crushed in 2004. But within two years, the volume topped 100,000 tons. And today, California wine growers crush more than 250,000 tons of Pinot Noir each year. Interestingly, the Japanese version of the movie did not have the same sideways effect on wine sales. One reason is that the featured grape is Cabernet, which is a varietal already popular in Japan. But even more critical and relevant to this discussion that we're having on storytelling is that Japanese audiences did not see the porch scene between Miles and Maya because there wasn't one. The scene was not included in the movie, in the Japanese version. No story, no emotional attachment to the varietal. You see, the movie, Sideways, did not launch a movement in Pinot Noir. The story that Miles told triggered the boom. In 60 seconds, Maya fell in love with Miles, and millions of Americans fell in love with an expensive wine they knew little about. The Storyteller's Tools We're all familiar with what it's like to get lost in a good book. Neuroscientists are finding that when we read a page-turning novel, we're immersing ourselves into the body of the protagonist. Researchers examining the brains of people while they read a book can see activity in the areas of the brain associated with the activity or experience the book characters are having at the time. We have actually stepped into the character's shoes, and as far as the brain is concerned, we've done it for real. The Pinot Noir story that Miles shares with Maya in Sideways transports the audience to another place. Viewers lose themselves in the story. Professors Melanie Green and Timothy Brock study the role transportation theory plays in persuading people to change their beliefs. The researchers say the power of narratives to change beliefs has never been doubted. When people are absorbed in a story, it impacts the beliefs they hold. The more emotionally involved they are with the characters, the more empathy they feel for the hero, and the more likely they are to buy into the hero's views. Green and Brock found that some stories and characters work better than others at changing beliefs. Audiences are more likely to be highly transported in a story if two conditions are met. The characters are likable, and have had to endure struggle. The most powerful tales tend to be those that involve negative aspects, such as dilemmas to be overcome or obstacles to be surmounted, say the researchers. Now let's think back to Sideways. Miles is a bit of a snob, but he's quite likable. He's funny, which psychologists say is a highly valued personality trait. He's loyal, he's generous, and he's passionate about his work and hobby. He's also vulnerable and authentic. Miles is human, and we care about him. 
Using Pinot Noir as a metaphor, Miles tells a story about suffering and redemption. The grape overcomes its struggle to reach its fullest expression. According to Professors Green and Brock, transportation is not limited to the written form. Yes, as we've discussed, a good book can transport a reader to another world. But, as in the case of Sideways, so can movies and conversations, pitches, and presentations. According to Green and Brock, any recipient of narrative information can be transported if they're attached to the character. In other words, if they like the person and they hear a compelling story with a dose of human suffering. The Storyteller's Secret Storytellers who trigger movements know better than to barrage their audience with an endless litany of facts, figures, and data. Facts are a necessary component of persuasion, but facts must be balanced with the skillful use of narrative to transport listeners to another time and place. Once listeners are figuratively walking in the shoes of the protagonist, the hero, they feel as though they have a stake in the outcome, and they're willing to do whatever's necessary to help the hero reach his or her final destination. Chapter 36 From My Heart Rather Than From a Sheet of Paper There are some realities that you can only see through eyes that have been cleansed by tears. Pope Francis Tuesday, October 9, 2012, began the same way as most other days for the 15-year-old schoolgirl on her way to class. She boarded a school bus, which was actually a rickety truck with a cover and three wooden benches in the back. The bus was making its way down a muddy road alongside a dirty, smelly stream when suddenly it came to a halt and two masked men boarded. One addressed the group, asking them to identify the girl, and then pulled out a Colt forty-five and fired three shots at the girl in quick succession. The first hit the girl in the left eye and exited her left shoulder. She slumped over, blood draining from her ear. The young girl was treated at a hospital in England, and she survived. She still lives in the United Kingdom because the risk of returning home to Pakistan is too great. Her first name alone has become a symbol of resilience and courage, Malala. Malala Yousafzai is not alone. At any one time, there are more than 60 million girls out of school around the world. Every three seconds, a girl becomes a child bride, and four out of five victims of human trafficking are girls. Those numbers are staggering, but as we know, the human mind does not handle abstractions very well. And that's why one face, one story, can humanize a global atrocity and give voice to millions who cannot speak for themselves. And when that face belongs to a brilliant storyteller, a movement begins. The Storyteller's Tools Malala is a teenager who speaks with timeless wisdom. An exceptional communicator, Malala grew up in a storytelling family. People would come to her family's house in the Swat Valley of northwest Pakistan to hear Malala's father tell stories. They loved to hear him talk, said Malala. I would listen, rapt as he told stories of warring tribes, Pashtun leaders and saints, 
often through poems that he read in a melodious voice, crying sometimes as he read. Malala recalls that her grandfather was also famous for his speeches. As an imam at a local mosque, his sermons were so popular, people would come down from the mountains by donkey or on foot to hear him. Listening to her family's stories made Malala want to be a great storyteller, too. She entered a public speaking competition and, consistent with her cultural tradition, delivered a speech written by her father. Malala finished second, and she learned a valuable lesson. She said, I started writing my own speeches and changing the way I delivered them from my heart rather than from a sheet of paper. One year after the attack that nearly took her life, Malala delivered a speech at the United Nations to draw attention to the millions of girls who are denied access to education. She received several standing ovations and sparked a global movement to unlock the potential of young girls. Malala's public speaking skills gave voice to millions of girls who are denied an education. Celebrities were moved to action. Actress Angelina Jolie donated $200,000 to the Malala Fund. Pop singer Madonna dedicated a song to Malala and displayed a Malala tattoo on her back. The movement had begun. Malala's book, I Am Malala, spent more than one year on the New York Times bestseller list. On December 10, 2014, at the age of 17, Malala took the stage in Oslo as the youngest recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. Her story put a face on the faceless and gave a voice to those who are kept silent. Now, the human mind simply cannot process this fact that 60 million girls are denied in education. That number is completely lost in bigger numbers, in the 340 million tweets people send out every day, or the 55 million Facebook updates that are posted every day. How is it possible for, in Malala's words, one child, one teacher, one book, and one pen to change the world? If the one pen belongs to an extraordinary storyteller, anything can happen. A tragic story can bring people to tears. A beautifully crafted story can inspire a movement. If you've listened this far, then you know that a good story must have a protagonist, a hero. When the hero has a clearly defined goal and must triumph over adversity to reach that goal, you get a hit. Give the audience something to cheer for. Austin Madison is an animator and a story artist for Pixar. He's been involved in Pixar movies such as Ratatouille, Wall-E, Toy Story 3, Brave, and many others. In a revealing presentation, Madison outlined the seven-step process that all Pixar movies follow. Step 1. Once there was a blank. The blank is the hero with a goal. That's the most important element of the story. Step number 2. Every day he blanked. The hero's world must be in balance in the first act. Step three, until one day blank. That's when a compelling story introduces conflict. The hero's goal faces a challenge. Step four, because of that blank. This is a critical step, and it separates a blockbuster from an average story. 
A compelling story is not made up of random scenes that are loosely tied together. Every scene has one nugget of information that compels the next scene. So step five is also because of that blank. Step six, until finally, blank. The climax reveals the triumph of good over evil. And finally, step seven, ever since then, blank. The moral of the story wraps it all up after the seventh step. The steps are meant to immerse an audience into a hero's journey and to give the audience something to cheer for. This process is used in all forms of storytelling, journalism, screenplays, books, presentations, speeches. Madison uses a classic hero-villain movie to show how the process plays out, Star Wars. So here's the story of Luke Skywalker in Seven Steps. Once there was a farm boy who wanted to be a pilot. Every day, he helped on the farm. Until one day, his family is killed. Because of that, he joins legendary Jedi Obi-Wan Kenobi. Because of that, he hires the smuggler, Han Solo, to take him to Alderaan. Until finally, Luke reaches his goal and becomes a starfighter pilot and saves the day. Ever since then, Luke's been on the path to become a Jedi Knight. Like millions of others, I was impressed with Malala's Nobel Prize-winning acceptance speech. While I appreciated the beauty and power of her words, it wasn't until I did the research for this audiobook that I finally understood why Malala's words inspired me. You see, Malala's speech perfectly follows this seven-step storytelling process outlined by Pixar. Now, I doubt she did this intentionally, but it demonstrates once again the theme in this audiobook. There is a difference between a story, a good story, and a story that sparks movements. For example, if we were to overlay Pixar's seven-step storytelling process onto Malala's Nobel Prize acceptance speech, here's how it would sound. Once there was a little girl who lived in a paradise home in Pakistan's Swat Valley, a place of tourism and beauty. Every day, she had a thirst for education and would go to class to sit and to read and learn. Until one day, the Swat Valley turned into a place of terrorism. Because of that, a girl's education became a crime, and girls were stopped from going to school. Because of that, Malala's priorities changed, and she decided to speak up. Until finally, the terrorist attacked Malala. She survived, because neither their ideas nor their bullets could win. Ever since then, Malala's voice has grown louder and louder, because Malala is speaking for the over 60 million girls deprived of an education. According to Pixar's Austin Madison, the seven-step storytelling outline works best once you've grabbed the audience's attention with an opening scene that slams you into the back of your seat. The first sentence of Malala's book, I Am Malala, does just that, slams its readers into their seats. The first scene begins with these words, I come from a country that was created at midnight. When I almost died, it was just after midday. One year ago, I left my home for school and never returned. I was shot by a Taliban bullet. 
Only after Malala slams you to the back of your seat with her opening sequence does she go back in time to introduce you to the characters before the Taliban, a time where everything is in balance. Stories do not inspire movements. Well-told stories do. Malala delivered her Nobel Prize speech at the age of 17. Great storytelling knows no age, and yet it's timeless. If you go back far enough, you'll find a story behind every movement. The Storyteller's Secret If you're going to share a story, make it great. A good story can bring one to tears. A great story can spark a movement. Chapter 37 Story, Story, Story Your voice is worthwhile. Have faith in it. John Lasseter John loved to draw. He drew everywhere, even in church. He filled sketch pads with pages and pages of cartoons, often a well into the night. And so John's parents had a tough time getting him up in the morning for school. But Saturday mornings were different. John woke himself up at the crack of dawn so he would not miss a minute of his beloved Saturday morning cartoons, especially Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner. In high school, John's passion for animation was further fueled when he read The Art of Animation, a book that explored the history of Disney animation. John's mother, Jewel, an art teacher who considered art a noble profession, supported John when he transferred out of Pepperdine to be enrolled as one of the first students in a new art course at the California Institute of the Arts, Cal Arts. Some of Disney's most important animation veterans, known as the Nine Old Men, taught the program. After graduation, John was thrilled to survive the ultra-competitive selection process, and he became an animator with Walt Disney. He had won his dream job, or so he thought. John was one of the first animators to recognize the potential of computer animation. Excited by its potential, he began working on a film to demonstrate the new technology to his colleagues. But John's boss was decidedly less excited by it, and one day he abruptly canceled the project and fired John. To this day, John can't talk about what happened without getting a tear in his eye, especially as he relates the moment when one of his supervisors turned to him and said, We don't want to hear your ideas. Just do what you're told. In 1983, John and his wife headed north, to San Francisco, where John got a job at the Lucasfilm's Computer Division, a group tasked with developing computer technology for the film industry. In 1986, a visionary named Steve Jobs bought the division for $10 million and established the division as an independent company called Pixar. Over the next five years, Pixar would nearly run out of money several times, Steve Jobs invested up to $50 million of his own money to keep the dream alive. Jobs was certain Pixar would revolutionize the movie industry. John remembers his very first meeting with Steve Jobs. He said we wanted to do a short film. I had to pitch it to him. I pitched the short film that became Tin Toy. Steve had a classic pose with fingers together, thinking... He was thinking not about the drawings on the board I was pitching, 
he was staring off into the future. At the end of that meeting, he asked me to do something, and it was the only thing Steve ever asked me to do. He said, John, make it great. Tin Toy went on to win the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film, the first Oscar ever given to computer animation. As it turns out, John Lasseter, Steve Jobs, and Ed Catmull had transformed Pixar from a computer technology company to an animation studio. Tin Toy served as the inspiration for Pixar's Toy Story. Other hits, of course, followed. A Bug's Life, Cars, Monsters, Inc., Ratatouille, Finding Nemo, Tangled, and, of course, one of the biggest animated movies of all time, Frozen. John Lasseter's life had come full circle when Disney bought Pixar, turning Jobs' original investment of $10 million into a $7.5 billion windfall. Lasseter was named the chief creative officer for both Pixar and Walt Disney Animation Studios. Those three words, make it great, would go on to inspire every frame of every movie Lasseter created from that day forward. Everything had to be great. Every product, every story, every time. The Storyteller's Tools John Lasseter will be the first to say that audiences are not entertained by technology alone. The technology supports the story. The story comes first, and there's no story without heart. Lasseter says, as we develop a story, the plot changes dramatically. Characters come and go. But the heart of the film, that's like the foundation of the building. You've got to get that right up front, because everything builds off that. You can't add that later. You can't punch up the heart. Lasseter also said that emotion comes from the main character. What does the character learn? How do they change? Everything in the film must support the main character's journey. The film revolves around the narrative. Technology complements the story, but the story always comes first. Many business professionals are enamored of PowerPoint. There is an estimated 40 million PowerPoint presentations delivered each and every day. Meanwhile, a growing number of communicators are using newer presentation tools, such as Prezi or Apple Keynote, tools that are attempting to reinvent the field of presentations. What I hope this audiobook and John Lasseter's story has taught you is that presentation software is wonderful, and you should be using it to illustrate a story, as long as it complements the story. But the story, the tension, the triumph, that comes first. Pixar co-founder Ed Catmull called Lasseter the first storyteller to join the company, even when it was primarily a technology firm. Lasseter's role was to make sure technology did not overwhelm the company's purpose to make great films. According to Catmull, we took pride in the fact that reviewers talked mainly about Toy Story and how it made them feel, and not about the computer wizardry that enabled us to get it up on the screen. Steve Jobs was once asked why many films are so dreadful, while Pixar seems to have one hit after another. 
He explained that animation is so expensive, a studio cannot afford to create too many scenes that are ultimately left on the cutting room floor. Walt Disney solved this problem by editing the film before it was created, and he did it with storyboards. Animators draw each scene on boards, and they use a scratch track to put in the voices and the music. Basically, we build the movie before we make it, Jobs explained. One of the things I'm proudest about at Pixar is we have a story crisis on every movie. And production is rolling, and there's mouths to feed, and something's just not working. And we stop. We stop, and we fix the story. Because John Lasseter instilled a culture of story, story, story. Even though Pixar is the most technologically advanced studio in the world, John has a saying that is really stuck, and that's this. No amount of technology will turn a bad story into a good story. Steve Jobs and John Lasseter bonded over a shared passion for creating stories that would outlive them and be watched for generations to come. Elsa's Badass Song Without Steve Jobs, there's no Pixar. And without Pixar and Disney, John Lasseter would not have had the platform to bring us some of the most beloved movies of our time. Frozen is one of them. If you're a parent of young children, then you probably have every song to Disney's Frozen stuck in your head. The movie's heroine, Elsa, was originally written to be a villain. One song forced the writers to rewrite the entire movie. In the original draft of the script, based on an adaptation of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale The Snow Queen, Elsa had magical powers that she used for evil. The Elsa in Frozen, of course, was quite different. Instead of a villain, she was a misunderstood protagonist, someone who had awesome power, had made a mistake, and learned to harness the power for good. Husband and wife songwriting team Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez were brainstorming the music for the movie on a walk they were taking in Brooklyn's Prospect Park. They threw questions at each other. What would it feel like to be a perfect, exalted person, but only because you've held back this secret? Robert said it felt like a kingdom of isolation. He wanted to feel Elsa's emotion when she finally decided to reveal her hidden gifts, and so he jumped up on a picnic table with his arms held wide, and he recited some of the lyrics that would eventually become famous for their message of empowerment. When the producers and screenwriters heard the song, they realized they had to rewrite the entire movie. Everything changed. The plot, the dialogue, even Elsa's appearance, because Elsa was no longer the villain. Let It Go won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Frozen's composer said Let It Go was Elsa's badass song because it helped them find their true north for the rest of the story. Here's the point. You can only reach the fullness of your potential when you find your true north, and you become comfortable with expressing who you really are. The storytellers you've heard about in this audiobook have all embraced their past, unleashed the treasure they hold inside, and have used their gifts to create their own stories. By doing so, they've captured our imagination, stirred our souls, 
and inspired us to dream bigger than we've ever imagined. Storytelling is not something we do. Storytelling is who we are, and there's a storyteller in each of us. Your story can change the world. Let it out. The Storyteller's Secret Story is king. Presentation software serves to illustrate the narrative, but the story always comes first. Conclusion The Storyteller's Universe If you're going to have a story, have a big story, or none at all. Joseph Campbell Storytelling is not a luxury, writes novelist Robert Stone. It's almost as necessary as bread. We cannot imagine ourselves without it, because the self is a story. If the self is a story, then we're all storytellers. The sooner you accept it, the sooner you can get started on the work of shaping your future. Storytelling strengthens cultures, and more importantly, preserves cultures for future generations. The Jewish people are said to be a nation of storytellers because they have a rich tradition of passing along parables, fables, folk tales, and sacred tales that are handed down from generation to generation. Stories, especially told face-to-face, transmit the experiences, history, wisdoms, and lessons of past generations. In other words, the voice, a person's exquisite musical instrument, carries the message on wings of a story from one heart to another, says speech professor and storyteller Panina Schramm. The Jewish people do not tell stories only for entertainment, she says. They are commanded to teach younger generations the story of their people. The messages in the tales are passed along in the most beautiful and imaginative way, namely through a story. Those images will remain in the memory longer than any lecture or sermon. A business is also a culture, a people, men and women who are bound together to sell products and services that improve the lives of their customers and move the world forward. According to Apple Store chief Angela Ahrens, great brands and great businesses have to be great storytellers. We have to tell authentic, emotive, and compelling stories because we're building relationships with people, and every great relationship has to be built on trust. A healthy relationship is based on trust, and stories build trust. Stories also connect people in a profound way. Storytellers influence one another to dream bigger and to move mountains. The end of one story is the start of another. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato once said, Come then, and let us pass a leisure hour in storytelling, and our story shall be the education of our heroes. Plato meant that the stories themselves create, inspire, and guide others to play the hero in their own life narrative. The poet Muriel Rukeyser once said, The universe is made of stories, not of atoms. Think about the universe of connections you've heard in this audiobook alone. Nelson Mandela inspired the world with his words and actions, but his approach to public speaking was inspired by Winston Churchill, 
whose books Mandela devoured. Mandela also said that his father was an excellent orator who captivated audiences by entertaining them as well as teaching them. Nelson Mandela was skilled at the art of persuasion because he had a keen understanding that the way to a person's mind is through his heart. Mandela's courage and character, his values and vision, all combined to create an iconic symbol of freedom and racial equality. But it was Mandela's gift as a storyteller that moved people to tear down the wall of injustice. Storytellers by the name of Oprah Winfrey, Peter Guber, and Brian Stevenson were among the millions of people whom Mandela inspired. Oprah, in turn, inspired Amy Purdy, Sarah Blakely, and millions of others to own their own stories. In the business world, Steve Jobs inspired Johnny Ive, Tony Fidel, Tim Cook, and John Lasseter, and countless entrepreneurs who are selling products that change the way we live, work, and play. Al Gore created a presentation that he showed to Richard Branson on the topic of climate change. It was titled An Inconvenient Truth. The presentation was structured as a narrative. Richard Branson told me that he was so moved by Al Gore's presentation, he made a commitment to invest a portion of his profits to combat global warming. One presentation can change the world. Mark Burnett, Mark Benioff, Bill Clinton, all cite Tony Robbins as a storyteller who influenced the way they see the world. And Robbins himself was inspired by the storytellers before him. The world's youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner, Malala Yousafzai, has inspired a generation of women to stand up against oppression. And Malala traces her courage back to the stories her father told her, especially the stories of Malalai, the warrior princess. Show me an inspiring leader, and I will show you a storyteller who influenced the way that leader sees the world. What do storytellers...